So our first reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Then from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 1. By the way, this is uh, a great book in Cambodia, uh, providing a great bridge for the gospel, because it talks about which is life is suffering, and it talks about the vanity and transience of life, which the Buddhists believe as well. 4 verse 1. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And then from chapter 5, verses 10 to 20. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. For, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil, 
that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Thanks, Wim. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, um, the three biggest decisions I've ever made in my life would be, number one, getting married. Num- or, sorry, number one, becoming a Christian. Number two, getting married. Close, close second. Um, number three would be when I quit my secular job a few years back to take on a role as a ministry apprenticeship, uh, as a ministry apprentice at the, the church that I was part of. Now, my big worry when I made that decision was the money side of things. I, I, was, I was wondering how I would manage with taking a pay cut. Um, but what I ended up finding much harder was the change in status that resulted from that. Um, so being an engineer previously, there, there, was a bit of, there was a bit of respectability to that. You, you tell someone you're an engineer and, and they, kind of, they know instinctively where you fit into the world. You tell someone that you're doing a, a ministry apprenticeship and they ask you, what's that? And you, you explain it to them and you can, you can sense that they're, they're mentally placing you pretty low in the social pecking order. Um, feeling so self-conscious about my changing job made me realise how much I'd bought into what I guess you'd call the world's view of success, um, which is that a, a successful life is all about having a job that provides you with money, a great lifestyle, and admiration from other people. Um, this, this view of success is the air that we breathe in the world around us. And my guess is that most of us would, would want to distance ourselves from this view, because deep down we know that there's more to life than work and money. We'd, we'd hate to think that at our funeral, the person giving the eulogy can only talk about what we did for our work. But I'd also guess that this pursuit of success shapes our lives a bit more than we might realise. 3,000 years ago when the teacher sat down to write the book of Ecclesiastes, he looked at the world around him and he, and he saw the same desire for material success that we see around us today. And so he challenges this view of success. He wants us to see not that work and money are bad things, but that they're really poor measurements of a successful life. And so he begins by showing us what happens when work goes wrong. I looked, under the, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. He sees people with power oppressing those without Maybe you've experienced a, a workplace or, or just a situation in life in general where you felt oppressed 
or you felt powerless. We all know that this is a, a huge problem all around the world where there's money to be made, people will be taken advantage of. But oppression isn't the only way that work can go wrong. Envy is another way. I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The teacher sees people who are motivated by envy. They're, they're, want, they're working hard to get ahead of the next person. There have actually been studies that have been done that have shown that people are less driven by the amount of money that they earn, but they're more driven by how their salary compares with other people. So they'd, they'd rather earn less money but know that they're earning more money than the, the person at the next desk. It's really interesting. And then verse 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Here's a man consumed by his work. This is, this is William Workaholic right here. He's, he's worked hard to, to build up wealth. He's deprived himself a lot of enjoyment along the way. But it never satisfies him. And one day he, he stops and he, and he asks himself, why? Who am I doing this for? So oppression, envy, and a life lived purely around work. Now, that's not an exhaustive list of how we can get it wrong with work, but, but what it does show us is that just how little human nature has changed over 3,000 years. And what these three mistakes have in common is that work has been put ahead of relationships. So the oppressive boss doesn't care about his workers. He just wants to, to turn over a profit. The envious worker sees the, the people around him um, just as rivals who he wants to get ahead of. And the workaholic has sacrificed his relationships on the altar of work. And so the teacher urges us to pursue a healthy balance of work and relationships. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In other words, it's better to be less rich but more content. Uh, and then we had that two are better than one little bit there. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Now, now the, these verses here are often used to describe marriage, but in the context, I'd say it's more about friendship in general. And the, the point being made is that, two, is that people go further together than they do alone. They get more work done. They help each other. They can defend one another. This balance between work and relationships isn't unique to Christian thinking either. It's, um, it's well established that relationships are good for our mental and emotional health. Um, research into burnout tells us that work is a, a major contributing factor, while a, a key to recovery is having meaningful connections with other people. Uh, you think of classic TV shows like Friends and, and Neighbours, which, which tap into this, this ideal of being in relationship. There's always a, a core friendship group. It's a desirable thing to be in relationship with others. And that's because we were made to be in relationship with others. So right at the start of the Bible, we see that God creates humans 
in his own image. And then he tells us two important things that humans are going to do. Um, so firstly, we'll work, we'll um, rule the creation under God. And secondly, we'll do it together. We'll do it in relationship with one another. So work and relationships are both key to what it means to be humans made in God's image. And so it's not surprising, is it, that work goes wrong when we lose sight of relationships. And also, also shouldn't be surprising when wealth lets us down, which is the teacher's next point. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Sociologists have come up with the term affluenza to, to describe an unhealthy relationship with money and material things. Uh, so the more we have, the more we want. There's always the, the next thing to get or the, the next pay bracket to hit. We never quite arrive. Uh, this guy called Jim Carrey, who you, you might have heard of, who earns a bit more money than me, so his, his thoughts on this subject probably carry a little bit more weight than mine. And, and this is what he says. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Wealth can't satisfy us. It can't give us security. The teacher tells us, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Wealth can be lost with um, bad investments, market crashes, scams, global pandemics, unemployment, sickness, injury, natural disaster, theft, so on and so forth. Financial security is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. The teacher looks around him and, and he pities people who have put their hope in money only to lose it and have nothing to give to their children. He also pities people who go through life wealthy but unable to enjoy it. And so he tells us, if your hope is in wealth, it's going to let you down one way or the other, either by disappearing or by leaving you wanting more. Which all sounds pretty negative so far, but the teacher does give us a positive way forward when it comes to material wealth. He says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Wealth and possessions are God's gift. Enjoyment of them is God's gift. The key to enjoying good things isn't the things themselves. It's knowing and finding our joy in the God who provides these things. The things themselves will ne never satisfy us. They were never meant to. If, if that's all we think there is, we're always going to want more. Work goes wrong when we lose sight of relationships. Wealth lets us down when we put our hope in it. And so perhaps at this point, it's worth just pausing and reflecting on how this lands in our own hearts and in our own lives. How is your balance between work and relationships? Do your family members and, and friends get the best of you or, or just, just whatever's left over from work? 
And does your hope rest in wealth or in something else? If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, maybe a a helpful question to get to the heart of this issue would be, um, what is stopping you from becoming a CMS missionary like women Micah and doing some of the things that they were talking about up here? Um, if If you seriously, now you might have a a good answer to that question, like I'm, I'm 95 years old, it's, <laughs> it's a bit hard for me, but, but if, you, if you seriously ponder that question for yourself, my, my guess is that you'll see very quickly how closely, how close work, wealth, comfort, reputation and, and financial security are to your heart. And I know that because that's exactly what happens when I ask myself that question. I think how far would you have to travel in Cambodia to, to get a good flat white? What's, how am I going to be able to keep my lifestyle going there? A passage like this challenges us on a number of fronts. You know, sometimes I'll be, I'll be talking to Alicia about how her workday is gone, or I'll be, I'll be playing with Rory, my little boy, and, but my head will be spinning with, with some sort of work issue that's, that's going on. So I'm, I'm physically present, but my mind is miles away. Some of our staff team are heading off on a, a national ministry conference this coming week. It's a, it's a great and really worthwhile conference. It's important for me to say that before I say what I'm about to say next. Which is, it, But it's also the sort of conference where you hear lots of really successful pastors talking about why their ministry is more successful than yours. Which, you know, it, it, it's hard at times not to, not to feel an unhealthy sense of comparison. And I'm sure there's equivalence for that in every sort of work that's represented in this room. Uh, So what about for you? Where does the value that you place in in your work or in your wealth need to be challenged by what the Bible says? Now, to be clear, the teacher is not saying that, that work and money are bad things. In fact, nowhere in the Bible says that. He's just showing us that they're terrible measures of success, uh, which means that we need to redefine success. Work and, and wealth will let us down in the short term if we put our hope in them, and they will fail us altogether in the long term. Because whatever value they have for us is completely lost the moment that we die. Everyone, the teacher says, comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? The ultimate knockdown argument against wealth bringing us true satisfaction is that we can't take any of it with us when we go. We bring nothing in with us, We take nothing out with us. About a thousand years after the teacher wrote these words, the Apostle Paul wrote some very similar words in the the book of 1 Timothy. He tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But there's a better treasure to come. And we see that in the the words from 1 Timothy a few verses later that, that Wim read to us just earlier. Essentially, Paul is saying here, don't put your hope in wealth. It won't last. Put your hope in God. 
He'll provide treasure that will last. By trusting in God, we, we take hold of the life that is truly life, eternal life. And we can only do that because God has made a way for it to happen. When we put our hope in God, we're believing that there's nothing I can do in my own strength for God to love and accept me. If I thought, if I thought there was, my hope wouldn't be in God, my hope would be in me. There's nothing I can do that's worthy of spending eternity with God. The only way it's possible is that God has sent Jesus, his own son, to die in my place, to take the hit for all the things that I've said, thought, and done that make me unworthy of standing before God. And not only that, but he's, he's raised Jesus back to life, showing us how real this promise is. If my hope is in God, then it's a sure hope because it's tied up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if all this is true, if, if all this is true, if Jesus has died and risen and true life is found in him alone, then the ultimate measure of success is that we take hold of this life that is truly life. Now, this, this is something I've believed since I became a Christian 14 years ago, since I first put my trust in Jesus, but, but it really hit home for me recently, and, and maybe it hit home for other people in this room as well. When I, when I woke up on what I assumed was going to be a normal Saturday morning to, to find out that Shane Warne was dead, and of course, we, we woke up this morning as well to, to find out that Andrew Simons was, has been killed in a car crash as well, but... Um, Shane Warne, this, this was a man who had it all, who achieved it all. He, he, he was an unbelievably good cricketer. I could, I could chew your ear off for hours about what an amazing cricketer he was. Famous all around the world. Had, had the lifestyle that we can only dream of. And at 52 years old, while he's on an expensive overseas holiday, he dies of a heart attack. Tributes pour in from all around the world. The MCG is packed out for his funeral. He has a, a grandstand named after him, but he's not there to enjoy any of it. Uh, now, none of this is a comment on his spiritual state. That's, that's purely between him and God. But, but all I want to say is that, is that it, it shatters the world's view of success, doesn't it? Because it shows how short-lived worldly success is. And it brings to mind words that Jesus himself spoke. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Our success and our money will count for nothing on the day that we stand before God. All that will matter on that day is how we've responded to Jesus. And if that's true, then we need to think very carefully about what it means to live a successful life. Or, or perhaps a better way to put it would be what a truly meaningful life looks like. Uh, this is a big one, particularly if you're a, a teenager or a young adult with us this morning, because you're at a point where you're, you're really starting to set the direction of your life. What, what do I want out of life? What am I aiming for in life? Can I encourage you, if that's you, to not to devote your life to chasing worldly success. Not to put your trust in work and wealth. Now, I'm not saying don't, don't care at all about those things, but 
Seek your satisfaction in Jesus. Serving him, following him, looking forward to seeing him one day face to face. Make that the overriding ambition of your life. For all of us, the, the nature of work in a fallen world, whether that's paid or, or unpaid work, this is, this is no different whether you're a, a CEO or a, a full-time mum, the, the nature of work in a fallen world is that it never quite feels finished, does it? There are, there are always those, those loose ends. There, there are probably work things on your mind right now. You've probably thought about work at some point during this sermon. Not surprising given it's on work, <laughs> I suppose. Um, the beauty of the gospel message is that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. See, the most important job that anyone has ever done was Jesus dying on the cross to save us. And he did it. It's done. There's nothing that I can add to it. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. Work goes wrong. Wealth lets us down. The picture of success that, that the world sells to us is hollow. It's hopeless. It will fail us. But Jesus will never fail us. And so we can put our hope in him with full confidence. God, we thank and praise you for the sure hope of true life that is ours in Jesus. Please help us to enjoy our work and to enjoy the good gifts you give us, but not to seek our satisfaction, our identity, and our hope in these things. May we always seek them in you alone. Amen.